Well, good morning, Highlands. How are you guys doing? Good. It's good to be with you guys again. It's always a treat. It's always a pleasure being with you guys. You guys are so kind to my family, even though they eat everything that you guys put out on the table. Uh, you guys still just continually give of yourselves to uh, the kids and to Jamie and I. Um, listen, we are in the book Song of Solomon. Now, just raise your hand. Have you ever heard a sermon from the Song of Solomon before? Like out loud. Okay, so most of you have not. So you're in the same boat as me, and this should go really well. That was a joke. I've actually never, ever heard a sermon on the Song of Solomon. So this is, uh, for a church, this is maybe unbroken ground. And, uh, but we do have this faith that for what God has put in his word, everything is meaningful, everything is right, and everything is good because of who God is in his word. So, we are going to tread through the deep waters of the Song of Solomon together, for better or for worse. All right, but what I would like to do is, I know uh, Elder Paul already read the passage we're going through, but I just, before we pray one more time, I just want to focus our hearts and our minds back in on three verses. I'm looking at 15, 16, and 17. Again, this is Song of Solomon chapter 2, um, looking at 15, 16, and 17. This is where the passage, and as we see the drama unfold between the, the woman and the man, this is where it is all heading. So read with me here, 15, 16, and 17, and then we'll pray. It says this, catch for us, or catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the cleft mountains. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, again, we come before you just so thankful for your word. And Father, how it speaks to so many different issues, and yet Father speaks so clearly about your gospel. I thank you, Lord, that the gospel really is the central thread through it all, and today we get to look at not just your love for us through Jesus, and Lord, our need for repentance and faith in you, ongoing repentance and faith, but Father, how you have also just simply instructed us about what to expect in marriage and how to protect the intimacy you give us, you've blessed us with, you've designed for us in marriage. Today, Lord, as we go through Song of Solomon, I pray, Father, that you would help us to humble ourselves to your word. I pray, Lord, that you would help each one of us, no matter what marital state we're in, uh, to reflect our hearts upon your word, to look at it as a mirror, Lord, to see ourselves rightly by it, and Father, to set our expectations, Lord, set our practices, set our hopes according to who you are and your design. Lord, this is, uh, this is a gigantic request. So, Father, I ask that you would do this in your power for your glory through the indwelt Holy Spirit in us. And Father, again, you would do this quickly. So we humbly ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So most of you guys, when you saw Mike's video go out earlier today, uh, maybe, hopefully, this might be patting my own uh, war chest here, but you might have said, oh, Pastor Josh is coming. That would be really nice. And then you heard, oh, he's going to be preaching on Saul of Solomon, or, uh, Song of Solomon. And then you thought to yourself, why? Why would he ever do that? And I think that's actually a big, gigantic question. Maybe for you guys, as you do your chrono read, I know we all started that last week, and we're expecting that to go uh, better than ever. 
but maybe when you guys get to books like Leviticus, it's easy to make that joke, right? I just kind of skip over Leviticus, and I move on with the rest of my life. Uh, but sometimes I think when we get kind of deeper into the Bible, especially into some of that wisdom literature, and we kind of get to Song of Solomon, we're all just kind of looking at it like, what is the deal with Song of Solomon? And Song of Solomon throughout history has been one of those books that really a lot of people have asked, what is going on with this book? Why is this in the Bible? Because if I'm reading it the way it seems to be written, wow, wow. But if I squint hard enough, I can make it all seem like something completely different. So Song of Solomon has perplexed the church and the church fathers and a lot of people that are way, way, way smarter than I will ever be uh, for many years. But I think Song of Solomon, the value that this book has for us, really shines in our day and age. Just think of two contexts with me here. First, just think about the culture around us. The culture around us is obsessed with sex and sexuality and really any way to escape God's design of marriage, right? But think of another area, and that's the church. The church has, either in response to the culture, become militant. And militant church is something that we can appreciate, but almost destructively so, right? That there really is no grace to be found in marriage. And marriage only needs to be worked one way, and that's the pastor's way. And however he interprets the Bible, that's the way it should go. The church has either done that or has flipped over to the other side of the spectrum, which has just said, you know what, anything to do with sex, sexuality, marital intimacy is just too taboo, right? That's something to, to pass off to the people who are way smarter than people like me. So either way, we're kind of stuck in between zones. And I think that's why Song of Solomon is so special for us. So maybe again, you ask that question, why Song of Solomon on a Sunday morning? And the answer is very simple. Mike told me to. No, that's not right. That's not right. No. I really do think that Song of Solomon is very important because, and I'll just read, read my note here. It just says this. A Song of Solomon is a poetic book praising the practice of marital intimacy God's way. Song of Solomon is a poetic book praising the practice of marital intimacy God's way. See, God's design for marriage is special. It's unlike any other relationship we could have on the face of this planet. God's design for marriage involves satisfying intimacy. And that's just not physical intimacy. That's emotional inf- uh, intimacy. That's relational intimacy. That's conversational intimacy. It is the whole being. There is no one that shares the level of relationship on the face of the earth that you can have, that God's design has, other than your spouse. It makes it special. And because it is so special, there's an intimacy found in marriage that is unlike anything else we can find. And maybe, again, you can just think about our culture today and just think about how many side streets right, our culture takes to get to that level of intimacy, to find that satisfaction. So God's design for marriage involves this satisfaction. It's almost a promise. We read it here in Song Song. It's a promise of intimacy, but there's also another promise. that when we pursue this level of intimacy by faith, meaning trusting God first, that what he says in his word is right, it is true, that something else is promised, and that is genuine satisfaction. 
marital satisfaction. Now, we might look at the culture, we might say, hey, look how messed up those guys are. But we also need to look at our own relationships and say, because of this broken world, (laughs) my marriage does not look like Song of Solomon. It does not look like this ideal springtime, budding garden, and all these other poetic things that we can say about it, right? But God's promise is that when we are driven by faith to pursue our spouses, there is a promise of satisfaction, intimate satisfaction. So that means we need the Song of Solomon. We need it. And we need it because one thing that it does above all else is it points us to the truth of the gospel. Maybe today you guys are thinking about your own marriage. Maybe you guys are thinking ahead to marriage. Whatever state you guys might be in, you might be thinking it is broken. It was broken. Maybe the expectation is it will never be broken. Song of Solomon combats that ideal as well. Your marriage, if you're unmarried now and you will be getting married by God's design, just brace for impact, right? Brace for impact. But we might not think about it this way, but we would have to say that the gospel... Jesus' saving work on the cross is for our marital intimacy. It is for our marital intimacy. And so Song of Solomon is doing two very, very explicit things for us. I need to avoid that word explicit. It's doing two very, very upfront things for us. The first is this. If you are unmarried, it is setting the expectation. Like I said, brace for impact. Today, we're going to be looking at a difficult passage, a very real-life passage, right? And we're going to be looking at just what obstacles come up in marriage and how somebody who's driven by faith can still pursue intimacy across these great divides. But then, if you are married, Song of Solomon encourages us to do something that's very simple but very difficult, really only something that does come by faith in God, and that is to be growing and satisfied in your intimacy, even when it costs more than you can imagine. I'll read that again. So our passage today is going to encourage us to grow and be satisfied in our marital intimacy, even when it is difficult, it is costly, beyond imagination. Honestly, when we grasp God's love for us, the overflow of that will be towards our spouse. It will. Again, this special relationship that God has designed that we will have with no other person on the face of the earth other than the spouse that he has brought to us, that is like the second cup that the Lord's love lavishly overflows out of the salvation cup into. If you guys are taking notes, I apologize. I gave Tina a big idea that I have since changed. So you can just scritch the whole thing out. I believe the spirit's the same. Honestly, like it's all, it's all good. But I I think I made it a little bit more uh, memorable. It's marital intimacy can be costly, yet promising satisfying. Marital intimacy can be costly, yet satisfying. So, look with me here at Song of Solomon. Again, we're in chapter 2. We're going 8 through 17. Look at the first two verses with me. It says this. The voice of the beloved... Behold, he comes leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Wow, we just get right into it right away, don't we? Listen, uh, so far throughout the book of Solomon, I know we're jumping in, you know, about a quarter of a way in, but really, uh, the Song of Solomon is this dramatic poem. 
And the two main characters of this dramatic poem are a man and a woman. And right at this point, they are looking forward to marriage. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of disagreement on where we are in, in the plot line, so to say. But by best readings, uh, I'm convinced that we are looking at a couple who is being prepared for marriage together, right? And they have both expressed their undying desire for each other, right? And we kind of get that, right? These two senses right here, Behold, here he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle and a young stag. We would instantly assume this is honeymoon language, right? This might be even like fiancé language. This man is full of energy. He is going to pursue his pre-spouse, and they are just going to have this unlimited excitement to be together, right? Sounds like everything is all roses. Well, look at this. Behold... He stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. Yes, the picture here is that the young man is like a gazelle or a young stag. We would never ever say that out loud to whoever our fiancé is, right? We would never ever say that out loud to our husband. But we can imagine it this way. You think about this. Uh, you have this pop country hunk, right, riding in the back of his 1500. His guitar is slinging out love songs left and right. And you, as a fiancé, are just looking at this guy piling up over the hills as fast as he possibly can toward you, right? Fills the heart with maybe terrible examples of what love really looks like, right? <laughs> but we're looking at this passage, and we're saying, this just seems so nice. Dad, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> It just seems so nice. But as we look at this, we actually see in the first two verses that there's actually a problem. That he isn't bounding over the mountains. He isn't traversing these hills as fast as he possibly can with excitement to be married. He's actually headed for restoration. The idea here about mountains and hills behind a wall, looking through the window, looking through the lattice. This is all poetic language for obstacles, that really the, the beloved, the man here, is looking to restore his relationship with his beloved. Everything isn't a bed of roses here in chapter 2. In fact, there's some, we don't know what it is exactly, but there is some relational obstacle between the man and the woman. Now, this means for us, that marriage isn't always a bed of roses. We know this. We know this. If you've been married for any amount of time, you understand that marriage isn't always this peachy, keen, delightful, hallmark movie of a situation. That almost day one, and if you really have your eyes open and you aren't stunned by love up to the day of marriage, you should really understand that your spouse isn't all she or he is cracked up to be even before you get married to them right? But marriage isn't always a bed of roses. Obstacles arise. Things happen. People happen, right? And because of those obstacles, intimacy wavers. Intimacy wavers. Of course, we're looking at things like personal failures. Looking at your spouse and just saying, what, what are you, why would you ever do that, right? Intimacy wavers. Disagreements or failure to compromise. 
You think you should go left. Your spouse says we need to go right. What do we do? Intimacy wavers. Uncontrolled events. Catastrophe. Financial. Family. Loved ones. Passing. Things that are just out of our control. And yet, God seems to put in our paths. Intimacy wavers. Unmet felt needs. Things that you really desire your spouse to do for you, and yet it just doesn't seem to be happening. Intimacy wavers. Maybe some things just simply as bland as busyness. Because I'm so busy, there's so much to do, intimacy wavers. Question for us this morning, a question that this pastor is going to ask us a few times, but I'm just going to front load it here for us, is what is your usual reaction to relational obstacles? What is it? When those obstacles do arise, you look at your spouse, you look at your significant other, you say, what? That just happened. And then inside, what is your usual go-to plan? Where does your heart flow chart go to after that? Maybe you'd say to yourself, you know, I'm just going to wait till it blows over, right? Time heals all wounds. That's in the Bible somewhere. So I'm just going to wait. I'm just going to wait. And then maybe tomorrow morning when we all pop up after a solid 10 hours of sleep, everything will be better. Or maybe, more devious, I'll just let someone else handle it. I'll just let somebody else handle it. And you try to deny it. That didn't, that didn't happen. And I certainly didn't mean it that way. Right? Or maybe, try to blame someone else. <laughs> That's not my fault. That's your fault. Right? We tend to have these selfish reactions to these obstacles. We tend to feel these obstacles, to understand the damage in our relationships even, and then board up shop. I'm isolating myself, taking myself out of the equation. I'm going to take my personal responsibility and go for a hike. You can deal with it. Thankfully, that's not what the picture of this faithful, loving man does. In a sense, the obstacles activate his loving pursuit for his wife. In a sense, that's what faith-driven intimacy looks like. That obstacles activate pursuit. When we look at these moments, we look at the personal failures, the disagreements, the failed compromises, the uncontrolled events, the unfelt needs, even the busyness, and we say that is more of an arena for me to pursue my husband, pursue my wife, than it is for me to shut down and isolate myself. It's faith-driven. It's not self-driven. It's not fear of man-driven. It's faith in God-driven. This means that when obstacles arise, we're not eager to retreat, but we're eager to pursue. So a couple follow-up questions for us. Are we eager to forgive? When it really does hit the fan, are we eager to forgive our spouse? To look them in the eyes and say, I not only forgive you, but I will continue walking with you side by side. Are we eager, and this is way more difficult, are we eager to ask for forgiveness? To say, I own up to what I did. Everything you said is absolutely true, even though every fiber of my being says it is not true, and I don't want it to be true. It's true. I not only did that, but I wanted that as well. And I planned it out and I did it, whatever. Are we eager to ask for forgiveness? Are we eager to look at our spouses and say, even though all this has happened, I'm still going to serve you. 
I'm still going to lovingly serve you. Maybe most importantly, are you eager to turn to the Lord together? Eager to say, that did happen, I know it happened, and our best hope is found in the Lord. Men, if I can talk to you just real quickly about this. Men, I love you guys. Uh, I'm in the same boat as you by God's design. And we tend to passively subcontract out active pursuit of our spouses. Right? We tend to be way more passive when obstacles come than the picture of this, of this loving, beloved man shows us in Song of Solomon. If anything should activate us towards our spouses, it needs to be those obstacles. When those obstacles come, men, the biblical picture is that we snap into active pursuit for our spouses. It's not a question, is it worth it, or anything like that. It is how can I pursue my spouse now to God's glory for their good. And we see this happening, this active pursuit, this leadership quality next. Now here in verse 10, it's a little confusing. Uh, This is most likely the man talking and the lady quoting him, okay? So in verse 10, we see this, these obstacles arrive, or arise, and now in verse 10, the woman speaks for the man, but it is the man's words itself. So now we get the perspective to shift here, okay? So in verse 10, he says, my beloved speaks and says to me. So here's his proposition. Here's how he is going to actively pursue his wife. He says this, arise, my love, my beloved one, and come away. What's his proposition? His proposition is let's be restored together again. This obstacle happened, but because God has brought us together, we're going to continue being together. We're going to do what it takes to be together. You see the call here, right? This active man is saying, yes, there is something in between us, but I'm calling you to me, right? I'm calling you to me. There's this great distance between you and I. We both know it. But I'm calling you up out of that back to me. Back to a restored relationship. Look as he continues here. He gives his reason. What is? How could he be so bold to ask his wife to come up out of that sorrow, out of that brokenness, and to join him again? For behold, the winter is past and the rain is gone The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. His reason here is that the cold, tumultuous season of brokenness is over. It's over. It might not literally be over. They still might be reeling from whatever it did was that happened. But at the same time, the husband is claiming it. He's saying the cold, tumultuous season is over. And you guys can help me out here. Fall, then winter, then... That's wrong, Ron. I'm going to be honest with you. That's, that's actually very wrong. It's... Do you really not? Oh, it's spring. It's spring. And that's the, that's the picture. That's the picture here in the verses. Look at this. He says, right, the winter is past, right, the rain is over and gone, but then look what happens. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. The voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom, and they give 
forth fragrance. The man is saying this cold, tumultuous season is over and this tender love, the season of tender love has sprung. It's springtime. The man is saying it is springtime. He envisions the springtime, and you can kind of see as he goes through this description of spring, all the senses, right? All the senses are activated here, every one of them. Smell, sight, even his ears, right? All the stuff, taste, it's all there, right? The husband is saying it is time for full restoration. It is time for you and I to be together fully once again. This picture of springtime this area, the, the spring that they are in, is full of life and is looking at this all-sense experience. This man, in pursuing his wife, expects a whole relationship restoration. And again, it's not like the world says. The world says your relationship is right when the physical intimacy is there. The man says, sure, that's a part of it, but... We are restored when there is a whole being intimacy. When our relationship is restored, when our physical intimacy is restored, when our emotional intimacy is restored, when all of us is clicking with the all of them, that is when our relationships are restored. Verse 14, he confesses why he is being so forthright, right? Why he commands her to arise with him, to come away with him. He says this, again, language we would never ever say, right? Oh, my dove, in the cleft of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. He's, again, I'm not sure if you ever call your spouse the dove, you call your wife the dove, I'm not sure if you're, if you're going to be doing that. Maybe after today you will do that, I'm not exactly sure. But, Here, the dove throughout the Bible is significant of what we see in Noah's Ark, peace, right? Looking at his wife, saying, yes, there is this felt brokenness between us, but I know that my peace rests in a relationship with you. Maybe just a quick question for us today is, do we just look at our spouses that way? To say, I know that a sliver of the peace that is promised me on this earth by God himself involves you. I think a lot of our heart is going to say no involves something else. And maybe even in the deepest, darkest parts of our selfishness, we would say, hey, this broken relationship just gives me more time to go pursue some of those things that I actually believe peace is found in. But by God's design, again, that sliver of peace that God promises us in this broken world is found in our spouses. And so he understands this, and so he goes looking. He's bounding over the mountains, crashing over the hills, searching every wall, every window, every lattice. Now he's on a rock face, skimming through the crannies of a cliff, just begging to be restored to her. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. Your voice is sweet, and your face is lovely. This points us to not just that faith-driven intimacy is active, but faith-driven intimacy pursues restoration selflessly. Selflessly. At the cost of yourself, you pursue your spouse. 
at the cost of yourself, you pursue your spouse. This obstacle hasn't just activated him to pursue restoration, but it's actually activated him to do something that we would never ever do outside of Christ, which is to give ourselves up, to sacrifice ourselves for the betterment of somebody else. Really what he's doing here is he is, in a sense, pursuing his spouse during the off-season. Right? We know what the off-season is. It's like a no-go zone. You can't go get, you can't go hunting during the off-season. And maybe we would understand that there are certain parts of our marriage, there are certain times of our marriages that it's just understood it is off-season. Right? We can't go there. We can't talk about that. Right? We can't do any of this stuff because it's just too severe. We see this active, selfless pursuit of the man for his woman uh, go even into off-season because he believes that she's worth it. He says, yes, that, all that stuff happened. I totally understand. Yes, I feel the destruction from it, but I still know who she is, and I still know that God is sovereign over this relationship. And so with those two things in mind, I am going to pursue her. It's a beautiful, selfless portrait of what pursuit looks like. And again, uh, probably in our hearts, because we suffer with sin, we would say that there's more off-season time than on-season time, right? We may not feel like it. We may not just say, you know what, today, restoration just is not, mm, no, I'd rather have an omelet than pursue my wife or my husband. And again, maybe as we just kind of trail down the rabbit hole of sinful possibilities here, we may not just say, I just don't feel like it, Maybe we even just confess, I don't even believe it's worth it. It's just too much. The cost is too great. Too much has been done. We may not feel like it. We may not even believe it's worth it. But maybe even the most devious of them all is, I just don't even think it's possible. That really, it's a, it's a bridge too far. Restoration in this relationship, it just can't happen. It just can't happen. That's why we turn to the gospel. Because this selfless pursuit is going to be costly. It's going to be costly. It's going to be costly. Some of those big questions that come up when you're looking at whether your heart is saying, I don't feel like it or I don't believe it's worth it or even if it's not even possible, you just say, what if my spouse doesn't even accept? What if I actually go buy a 1500, learn all those pop country love songs, do everything Pastor Josh said, and then my wife says, you know what, that was great and all, and I really appreciate you spending all of our money like that. But it's just, it's not going to, I'm sorry. What if she doesn't accept? What if he doesn't accept? Selfless pursuit is costly. It's risky. What if I fail? What if I fail? Or maybe even if we're just thinking about it, what if it's just too late? What if it's too late? Again, this is where we just praise God that the gospel is a reality for us. The springtime season here, if you guys read it and you guys think about just the imagery of it, where does it put us? It puts us in a garden. It puts us in a garden. If you read the whole book of Song of Solomon, which I really encourage you to do, it's just, it's bounding from garden to garden to garden. And again, maybe we would just confess, my marriage right now, my marriage back then, I'm sure my marriage in the future will not be a garden oasis of pure springtime love. Right? And yet... That's exactly what the gospel promises us here. Because what happened in the garden? God created Adam and Eve, built them for spiritual intimacy with him. And then what happened? Adam and Eve, you and I, 
geniuses that we are, said, you know what? I think I can do it better. I think I can find satisfaction outside of you, God, in what I have put together, right? I will enjoy that fruit more than I will enjoy you as my king. And once sin happened, what did Adam and Eve do? They hid. They ran away. And who pursued them? God did. By God's grace, in the Garden of Eden, God was the pursuer. He said, you're worth it. And he went after Adam and Eve to love them the best that he could. In sin, we do the same thing. We hide from God. We hide from our spouses. We do the same exact thing. And yet, God's pursuit of us in love continues. Uh, Jesus comes to earth. He humbles himself. He empties himself for who? For us. I mean, for crying out loud, we are not all that great. And yet, and you can ask your spouse about that. And yet, at the same time, God says, you're worth it. And so I'm going, to do, I'm going to be as selfless and sacrificial as I possibly can in order to what? To restore you to me. Praise God. So, we hide in our sin. We lash out in our sin. We refuse to pursue our spouses in our sin. And yet, Christ calls us to understand his pursuit of us so that we would pursue our spouses well. Love for a spouse only comes from an understanding and acceptance of God's love for us. More important than that, what really combats that risk is trust. Trust in your spouse. When all the obstacles are in our way, trust for a spouse comes from trust in God. The more we depend on Christ, the more that we trust Christ, the more we know Christ, the more we commit to Christ's ways, the more we look at our spouse, and again, with all the white-hot chaos going around, with all the busyness, with all the personal, spiritual, emotional, physical destruction around us, we can say, okay, but I know, I know what God's design is, and I will pursue you in love. And so we love and we trust our spouses because we love and trust God. I think there's a caveat here as well. Maybe caveat's the wrong word, forgive me, but I think a big question we need to ask is, what if, what if I am married to an unbeliever? What happens if I'm in the garden with the Lord, enjoying a personal relationship with him, and yet my spouse is going the opposite direction? The Bible so clearly, and again, so beautifully tells us the answer to that question. It says that the faith-driven intimacy that you have for your spouse, what does it put on display? It puts the gospel on display. That if anything should win somebody back to the Lord, it should be this undying, unbroken love for them. And thankfully, we read this in Ephesians chapter 5, thankfully, one of the most, uh, most best, ugh, one of the bestest, that's better, pictures of the gospel is that, right, a marriage that faithfully loves one another in every way. That emotional intimacy, that physical intimacy, Relational intimacy, intellectual intimacy, all those, right? So keep on. If your spouse is an unbeliever, I encourage you to keep loving them as Christ has loved you, to keep the gospel in the forefront of your mind. If today you're sitting here and you're looking at your spouse and you're saying, you know what? Uh, I don't know if I believe in Jesus. I don't know if I repented of my sin and believed in him for salvation. 
And today, I would, I would encourage you to think about what the Lord's pursuit looks like for you. That he didn't take the easy way, that he didn't subcontract it out to somebody else, but he took the lead. He actively pursued you, and he did so selflessly by sacrificing him on the cross to extend that offer to you to say, if you repent of your sin and believe in me, that we can have relational restoration together. Not just here on earth, but you can have that eternal peace with me from now on. So, do you reflect on the gospel when the need for selfless pursuit arises? It's going to arise. And I just want to encourage us to put that gospel filter on first. Do you look at those situations? Do you look at those obstacles? Do you look at those conversations? Do you look at your goals? Do you look at your purposes and say, what does the gospel require of me here in my marriage today? Do we reflect on the gospel when the need for selfless pursuit arises? One of God's best gifts is that even though they're through this winter and fall time, they're through the snow, they're through the rain, they're through the 27-degree mornings, right? They're through all this relationally, right? Those times are actually necessary for growth, right? It's the hardship, it's the trials that deepen our faith and trust in God. It's also those hard times when we work through it with a gospel mindset that we look at our spouse and we say, okay, I actually know you're on my team because we just went through that difficult time. So don't let the difficult times scare you. Pursue the Lord, pursue your spouse through it. And it leads to something absolutely blissful. Look at verse 15, 16 and 17 with me. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. Look, at the end of 15, we get sort of the, the ongoing result here that now that this restoration has taken place, their vineyards, their garden, right? The springtime, it's all in blossom. The, the flame of love has been kindled again. They're both looking at each other rightly. They're about to experience this, again, full relational love. And yet the command here in 15 is to catch the foxes, those pesky, annoying, ruinous creatures we deal with foxes here in North Jersey, but has anybody ever like lost a vineyard to a fox? No, neither have I. So I don't really, I don't really get it. But I do know that foxes tend to ruin things. And so here, what is going on is actually the man and the woman are commanding each other to take care of the garden. Now that they've both pursued each other, now they've both found themselves back in this springtime garden, now is the time to not be reactive. The obstacles happened, we reacted with gospel truth, and now we're seeing the restoration, but now it's time to protect that restoration. Now it's time to protect the garden. In our marriages, we need to do the same thing, right? This pursuit, this active selfless pursuit isn't only a reaction, it is, I don't know what proaction is, but it's a proaction. We do it ahead of time. We make sure that we're defending the holiness, the pleasure, the satisfaction of our marriages, right? But he goes on. Why is it such a big stake to protect the garden? Verse 16, my beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. So if these garden spoilers, these foxes need to be taken care of, the big idea here is that because the intimacy that has been restored is satisfying. You get two different takes on it, two different sides, right? The woman is confessing here that her beloved, the man, is hers. Well, they were once separated, are now together again. And she says, and I am his. It's a mutual togetherness, right? The picture of this restoration is from both sides. Not one of them is lying to the other. Not one of the other is making up this false reality, right? He loves me while he's out golfing for 19 hours a day, right? It's not like that. It is this mutual togetherness. Both confessed, both experienced together. 
The woman is satisfied in the restoration, right? That belonging to one another, the woman is satisfied. And the man here, right, he grazes among the lilies. Again, back to this deer image. Again, we would never say this in our day and age, but the lady does refer to herself as a lily earlier in chapter 2. So this prancing deer that is bounding over all the hills in search of his wife has now found her, and he is satisfied in her and her alone. It's not satisfied among all the flowers, It's not satisfied outside of the garden. It's satisfied with specifically the lilies, with his wife and his wife alone. Satisfaction, pure, good, God-designed satisfaction comes in our relationship with our spouse. So the man and the woman are restored, and we see the satisfaction that comes out of it. And when God's design is followed, this intimate satisfaction comes. The peace comes. The joy comes comes. So verse 17 caps off our passage. It says this, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the cleft mountains. The voice goes back to the woman here, and the woman now commands the man. Oh boy, right? She tells, looks him straight in the eyes and says, listen pal, right? You need, you need to stay like that gazelle. You need to stay like that young stag. I'm ordering you to pursue me at any cost. And we see here the active role of a woman in a relationship. Yes, there's this active pursuit, right? The first person to head towards restoration is the man. But ladies, if I can talk to you real quick, your active and selfless pursuit of your husband is to show up in support, to look him in the eyes and say, you need to be the godly man that God has called you to be. But not just to support him, to forgive him as well. To look him in the eyes and say, yes, you did do that. And that is about the one billionth time you've done that, so thank you for that. But I forgive you. I, I understand what God has done for me, so I can continue to express that forgiveness to you. To support him, to forgive him, to follow him, right? To follow him. Here we get this image of this guy just sprinting over hills. Sometimes you just look at, look at your man, and you're just like, what are you doing? But if there's no glaring sin, right? If he is encouraged by God's word, prayerfully considering what faith-driven obedience to the Lord looks like, then there's this essence that because I trust the Lord, I will follow him as he trusts the Lord. And then finally, uh, pray for him, part of that following, and then love him. I tried to avoid as much risque material as I possibly could, but as the Lord's design, the very last sentence here, the young stag on a cleft mountains, just take it, it is something that the lady does for the man, right? Called to love him. I'm really trying to be as careful as I can here with it, but I think you guys can figure it out, right? Ultimately, there is this, there is this cooperation in the relationship that does come to physical intimacy, right? That husbands and wives, you can enjoy that. You can encourage each other on toward gospel faithfulness in how you physically love each other. So, if love seems far off in your marriage today, the first step here, I think, as we see through all this, is to communicate. Over and over and over again, one of the words we see in this passage is voice, speaking. If you guys, and if I as well, right, find that our marriages are far off from love, one of the first things we can do is communicate. But probably first and foremost is that we could pray to the Lord. Communicate to him what is going on. 
right? And how his instruction can influence us. How, again, how he communicates the gospel to us can inform us on how we ought to live in our marriages. But then, to talk to your spouse. To go through those acts of forgiveness, reconciliation. To talk through the hurt. To be peacefully minded through those conversations. To really pursue what the Bible is pointing us to, which is to influence our spouses, to help them be sanctified in their pursuit of Christ, one way or another, actively and selflessly as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for this passage. And Father, I know that uh, it is, um, <laughs> it is uh, weird. Um, Father, I ask, Lord, that you would impact our hearts with the truth of your gospel. We thank you, Lord, that you promised to do that. I also pray, Father, that you would help the marriages today uh, here and around us, Lord, to pursue uh, each other well uh, with that gospel filter. Lord, I ask that you would continue to work in our own hearts, Father, to understand the truth of the gospel and what it means for every facet of our lives. And Lord, I pray that we would pursue each other uh, here in our marriages, but also, Lord, as we just kind of think about what it looks to selflessly pursue each other at church, Father, to uh, restore relationships, Lord, to influence each other towards the sanctifying grace of the gospel. Lord, I pray that all in all, we'd be influenced by your love so we can love others well. We pray this in Jesus' name.